Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. connect with a large group of change makers, uh, people who are passionate about creating good social change. I'm really honoured to be here and um, in, in our next 50 minutes together we are going to have a little, little bit of a look at the field of positive psychology, we'll have a look at the science of uh, strengths. I'll tell you a little bit about my own journey and how it is that I came to um, build and develop Centre for Positive Psychology at the University of Melbourne uh, and then more recently set up a social enterprise that works with communities, that works with schools, that works with parent bodies and associations to help build the mental health of young Australians. And I'll finish with a community example. I feel like my microphone's going in and out. Okay, well, thanks for validating that because <laughs> I was like, is this just happening inside my own head? Sometimes that does happen. <laughs> Not just to me. All right, so what do we do about that, guys? All right. Okay. Otherwise, I feel like doing it. <laughs> feel like doing it, and I did do it, and it got a laugh. Woohoo. <laughs> All right, so we are going to um, have a little bit at the look of the field of positive psychology. We'll have a look at some strength based science. I'll tell you a little about my journey. Uh, and how it is that I came to build the Centre for Positive Psychology at the University of Melbourne and then set up my own social enterprise uh, around boosting the mental health of young Australians. And then, as I said, we'll finish with um, a, a, an example of a community, a New South Wales community that I'm working with at the moment who are putting in place um, a very impressive whole community strength-based initiative designed to boost the mental health of teenagers in that area. So like I said, we're going, to, we're going to talk a little bit about psychology, we're going to talk a little bit about mental health, we're going to talk a little bit about community action. But really the core of my talk is on change and how it is that we create change and how it is that we seek improvement. Um, what I'm hoping to do in my time with you is, I guess, uh, flex your mind a little bit, challenge you a little bit about our very ingrained notions of change and the process of change. So let me start with an example. Um, let's pretend that I am your boss. And we're at this conference today and it's all very exciting and I walk past you in the hallway and I say, can you make an appointment to come and see me on Friday because there's some areas of improvement that I would like to talk to you about. What goes through your mind? <laughs> What have I done wrong? Exactly. I can see from your body language. So, we meet on Friday. What even is today? Today's Tuesday, right? So, you've got three days to sweat it. What is today? Monday. So, knowing days and times is not one of my strengths. Um, all right, so you've got four days to sweat it. What have I done wrong? Areas of improvement. What does she want to talk to me about? What do I need to fix? We have our meeting on Friday and we sit down and, you know, I say to you, what I've noticed about you is you are exceptional at, you are exceptional at volunteer management. You are exceptional at grant writing. 
you knock it out of the ballpark when it comes to bringing stakeholders on board and seeing our vision. You have a gift for taking a very small budget and eking out as much as you can from it. And what I want to do is take this talent and help you improve it. Because if we can build on that strength, that's going to be good for our organisation, our not-for-profit, our humanitarian organisation, our local council, whatever it happens to be. If I can help you to improve that, that's going to be good for our organisation. It's going to be good for you because you're playing to a strength. You're doing something that you're good at, that you get energy from, that you're self-motivated to do. And if I can figure out how it is that we take something that you're good at and improve it and really analyse why it is that you have this strength and improve that strength, then you can share that learning with the rest of your team members. So all of us become better. So you leave that conversation on Friday, coming out of that conversation feeling very different to the way that you went into that conversation. Why do you think that is? You're expecting the worst. You're expecting the worst because when you hear the phrase areas of improvement, you immediately think improvement is a process of fixing what is wrong. And we have been conditioned in society to think that. Improvement is a process of fixing problems, fixing error, fixing what is wrong with us. And yet we can improve what is right with us too. So you don't stop there on today, Monday, yes, Monday, Lee and think, oh, maybe she's going to talk to me about how I can improve something that I'm doing well at. And that's one of the essences of the field of positive psychology, is let's start first with what is working, let's start first with our strengths, what's going well, and see what happens if we build on and amplify those. And it's a foreign concept to us, because we immediately think about change as fixing what is wrong. We think about improvement as fixing what is wrong with us. And yet, if you think of... Anyone who's ever reached the top of their game. I'm going to see if I can move away from this and, and we, we're still getting... I, I don't like standing in front of a lectern. I've got this thing that if I stand, my feet stand still, my brain goes still. So I'm going to see if I can move and you can still hear me. I want to do that joke again, but I won't. All right, how are we going now? This seems to be okay, but I'll go back if need to be. If you think about anyone who's ever reached the top of their game, think about an Olympian... Think about a Pulitzer Prize winner, Nobel laureate. They don't get there by spending all of their time improving what is wrong with them. They, f they fix the areas of improvement. They fix the areas of improvement. They fix what's wrong with them up into a level of proficiency. No, this is not working. And then they spend the rest of their time improving on their strengths. David Beckham spends a certain portion of his time developing his defence skills, but he spends the bulk of his training time perfecting his goal shooting. Goal kicking? It's probably not goal shooting, is it? <laughs> Just pretend he's a netballer for a minute. I'm sure he'd be happy with that. <laughs> but you get my point. We spend so much of our time creating change based on problems, fixing problems, that we don't stop to think about what's working well within this system, what's working well for this person, what are the strengths and assets of our organisation or our community that we can leverage and harness. Let me give you another example. Let's say that um, a student comes home to a family, they've got their report and they're, they're doing five subjects and in their report across the five subjects they get one A, three C's 
and a D. Now, in theory, that D should occupy about 20% of the conversation. Put up your hand if you think in practice more than 20% of the conversation will be spent at the dinner table on the lower grade. Put up your hand if you think that's the case. Yeah. We look at change as kind of fixing the problem. And our first thought is what's wrong and how can I fix it? Now, if we were having this as a private conversation, and I've had this conversation in many different contexts over decades now, people, you would say to me, but Lee, we need to fix the D. That's the weak link in the chain. And I would say, absolutely, we need to fix the D. The question is, what is your assumption about the process of change? Because what will generally happen is we'll zoom in on that D, the poorer grade, we'll spend a lot of time analysing it, and what we get at the end of that analysis is a deep understanding of poor performance. If instead we flicked the orientation and instead of saying, why did you get the D, we started our conversation with, tell me about the A. What was it about the teacher, your study patterns, your homework timetable, your interest? What was it that allowed you to get the A? If we study the A, we end up having an understanding of success. If we study the D, we have an understanding of poor performance. So even though we might be great at understanding and overcoming poor performance, all we can really hope to do is kind of lift that D up to maybe kind of a C, get someone out of the negative. If instead we start with the A, we get an understanding of what creates success, we've got actually a much better opportunity with that young person to help them transfer and translate what they're doing well to all four of those other subjects. So we actually get an opportunity to enhance the Cs as well. Do you see the difference? But our natural temptation is to zoom into the problem. What's wrong and how do I fix it? It's not our natural temptation to think what's right and how do I improve that? And that's the same for any form of change. If you're seeking to create change in your own individual life, if you're seeking to create change at a school, in a workplace, at a community level, we focus first on what is wrong. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't. We do want to address the D. But there's a different way of doing it, coming at it first from what's working well. And you can imagine that not only is that a more effective solution for that student, because they start to analyse what is getting me an A, maybe I can apply that to the other four subjects, it's also a much more empowering solution for that student. Instead of coming out figuring out what's wrong with them, they come out figuring out what's right with them. And they, they, they feel good about themselves and that empowers improvement. Improvement isn't just a process of fixing what's wrong with us. We can also improve on what's going well. We can improve on what's going well and what's right for us. And it turns out that when we invest our energy in improving what is right with us. This is a key pathway to organisational performance. It's a key pathway to mental health. It's a key pathway to you as an individual or at a group or collective level, reaching your full potential. So then the question is, why don't we do this more often? That's why I call my book The Strength Switch. It's not about ignoring the problem. It's not about ignoring the D, but it's about switching your attention so you focus first on what are the strengths? What's going well? What are the assets that we can leverage here to create change? Rather than just creating change by saying, what's the problem and how do I fix it? It's about switching our attention. It's not about ignoring problems, but it's about coming at them from a different side. 
So then the question is, why don't we do that more often? Why are we so conditioned to go, what's wrong and how do I fix it? Rather than our first question being going, what's right about this and how can I amplify that? Psychologists refer to this as our negativity bias. The negativity bias is a inbuilt, universal, subconscious bias. Everyone in this room has the negativity bias. It's a subconscious bias. We're not aware of it. And it's built into our brains to ensure our survival. It's a bias whereby our brain is designed to focus first on what is going wrong before we focus on what is going right. It's a subconscious bias that grabs our attention first to the negative before the positive and then holds our attention more on the negative than the positive. So in terms of grabbing our attention, everyone in this room, and it, and it doesn't matter what personality you have, you can have a very positive personality style, this is a subconscious bias. Everyone in this room, if you, you think about it like your own kind of internal inbuilt smoke detector system. You're always scanning the environment. You're not aware of it because it's happening at a subconscious level, but you're always scanning the environment. Where's the threat? Where's the threat? What's the error? What's the problem? What do I need to fix? And your attention zooms into it. It's grabbed first by the problems in our environment and not what's going well. And the reason for that is that the negativity bias gave us a survival advantage. You think about it, our ancestors out on the savannah, if they had this inbuilt negativity bias, this inbuilt kind of smoke detector system. Where's the threat? Where's the threat? Where's the error? What can go wrong? What's the problem? What do I need to fix? They had an early detection system for threat. So these were the, our ancestors who heard the little rustle in the bush behind them before anyone else did. Uh-oh, I better run. Can you imagine what happened to our ancestors who didn't have that inbuilt negativity bias? What do you think happened to them? Yeah, they were lunch. So the negativity bias is a subconscious bias whereby the negative things in the environment grab our attention first. We don't necessarily need the negativity bias today, in, in our country at least, in a first world country, peace. We're not under mortal threat. But our brain hasn't caught up. So our brain still operates under, um, you know, our brain's first priority is to always ensure our safety. So it plays out in different ways. You open up your, you, you've gone to this great conference at lunchtime, you zip out, you get onto your phone, you open up your emails, and there's a particular name that you see in your inbox. And you get this physiological reaction. That is your negativity bias. It's like, uh-oh, <laughs> alert, alarm, alert, alarm. So the negativity bias is our friend. It helps to ensure it's this early detection system to ensure threat. Threat is on its way. Get out of, way, get out of your way before. So it grabs our attention first. It also holds our attention for longer. So we spend more of our time ruminating over neg negative things, problems, than we do over positive things. The problem with that is that we don't see the situation clearly. You know, we spend more of the time listening for the rustle in the bush. We're so fixated on that that we fail to notice that on that bush is a beautiful berry that could be a food source for us. So our attention, because of the negativity bias, is grabbed towards the problem. And there's not much we can do about the negativity bias except just be aware of it, be aware of the fact that our reality is shaped by the negativity bias. It's a very useful tool for you to have in all certain situations. 
Interpersonally, I'll give you an example from my home life this summer. So I'm based in Melbourne. For the people based in Melbourne, we know we have, we, you know, we have those spate of like 40 plus degree days, they're crazy hot, desert sort of heat. And we had a spate of those. And my husband is very fixated on temperature. I call him temperature man. And uh, so, we, you know, we have certain jobs in our house. We never discuss these jobs. So, like, he's responsible for temperature and I'm responsible for cleaning the toilets. We never actually discuss that. It just kind of, over 23 years of marriage, it's certain jobs have been allocated to each of us. Um, I'm trying to get my son to be responsible for cleaning the toilets at the moment. It's not working very well. Um, anyway, temperature man. So, it's a Sunday afternoon. It's crazy hot. It's been four hot days in a row. And my husband is catching up with some of his high school buddies and they're going to the movies. And so he leaves for the afternoon and he leaves me this big list of instructions. We've got two different types of cooling. We've got evaporative cooling and then we've got uh, ducted. I don't even know what they are because it's not my responsibility. Ask me about toilet cleaner I can tell you everything. But... So he leaves and he leaves me with this long list of like when it gets to a certain temperature outside, that's when you turn off the evaporative cooling and you put on the other cooling. And, 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 and so yes, so he leaves... Um, and I have to tell you that I was feeling very virtuous that day. I was feeling like if there was a poster for best wife on bus stops, it would just be a picture of me with like a halo above my head. Because, you know, I'm looking after our kids. He's going out. He's playing with his mates. I'm cooking dinner. I'm doing the washing. I'm getting, when it gets to a certain temperature, I'm changing the evaporative cooling. And, and I went above and beyond my job description. So I actually went around the house and I closed all the doors from the extraneous rooms and I closed the curtains. I was feeling so good about myself that I kept the temperature cool. And Matt comes home and he comes into the kitchen and I'm um, preparing a salad for dinner. And unbeknownst to me, I had left one of the kitchen windows open, just ever so slightly open. I didn't realise I had done that. And so Matt walks into the kitchen and I'm like, hi, how was your day? I'm preparing the salad. And he says, you left the kitchen window open. So I'm chopping the carrots. Put the knife down. Back away from the weapon. And I'm about to go into the whole, like, unappreciated wife script, you know. I'm the best wife in the world. You've been out playing, and, 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 and I closed all the curtains, and, and you're the first, you don't even say hello. And then I realised, okay, that's Matt's negativity bias, because he's temperature man, right? So he comes into the house, whether he knows it or not, scanning, alert, alert, alarm, alarm, alarm. You know, this is the window open. He's not trying to be ungrateful. He's not unappreciative of what I've done. It's just his negativity bias because we're primed to see the things that can go wrong before the things that can go right. So in that moment when I realised that I stopped the whole unappreciated wife, I had a little pause. He didn't get away with it scot-free because I did talk to him about it later and say, you know, when you come home, it'd be nice if you said hello first. Um, and, he, and in his mind, he did. He said, I, I, I did. I said hello. And then I pointed out the window and I said, no, you didn't. <laughs> anyway, I hope that you're laughing with me um, <laughs> and not at me. So... Negativity bias, it, it compromises our ability to see reality and there's not much we can do about it but just be aware of it because it's a major player in how we address change. 
Because when we're addressing change, we see the problem first. So it primes us towards what is the problem and how do I fix it? We have to consciously step away from that and think what is going right in this situation and how do I leverage off that? It takes intention. It takes a switch in focus, hence the name of my book, The Strength Switch. So just to give you an example, let's say we have this is our reality and in this particular version of reality, we have an equal number of good things happening to bad things. Now, that, that will change. Sometimes there'll be more bad things. Sometimes there'll be more good things. But the, but the thing is, because of our biases, because of the way that our brain works, we don't see this reality. We don't work with the full reality. What happens immediately because of the negativity bias is there's just some good things that are happening. Like Matt didn't notice the curtains and he didn't notice that I'd shut the doors. Some good things that are happening in our environment, we just fail to see unless we intentionally step back and zoom out and look at them. In addition to some of the negative, some of the positive things going awry, what happens is the negative things, because of the negativity bias, become amplified. So all of a sudden we go from a condition where there are all these aspects of reality that we can use to effectively create change, but they're not in our purview. We don't see them. We see the negative and we miss the positive. What that does, of course, is that it primes us to create change by going, everything's wrong, we need to fix what's wrong. I would like you to have a discussion for two or three minutes at your table about an example of the negativity bias that you've seen, maybe in yourself, uh, maybe in your kids, work, maybe and not, not necessarily you seeing the negative in your kids, but your kids coming home after school and they've had a great day at school, but they talk to you about the one thing that went wrong, for example. Uh, your workplace, your community, society. Just a quick conversation of where, even though there's good things happening, our attention gets focused on the negative. Thank you. I know it's a great conversation to get started and maybe it's something that you can continue uh, over the lunch break. But really, I just want to introduce you to the idea that our brains are wired towards negativity. It ensured a survival advantage, but it doesn't necessarily give us an advantage when we're trying to create change because it means that we zoom in on what's the problem and how do I fix it? And it means that we don't see the food source. We hear the rustle in the bush, we don't see the food source. And yet we know in all the science of my field, the field of positive psychology shows that if we focus first on what's going well and use that as a leverage point to create change, it's more effective, we're more successful. It's also much more engaging and empowering for us when we're doing that process. So the negativity bias, the problem with the negativity bias is that it primes us to focus on problems. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't focus on problems. But what I am saying is that fixing problems is not the same as building strengths. Focusing on the D is not the same as focusing on the A. What we learn about good performance is different to what we learn about poor performance. So when we focus on fixing a problem, that's great, we're fixing a problem. But we're not necessarily building up strengths. We're not necessarily building up assets in the system. The absence of a negative is not the same as the presence of a positive. Fixing a problem is not the same as building up strengths. And yet when we build up our strengths, this is when we create positive momentum for change. If you think about it, reducing racism, we absolutely need to do that. But that's not the same as building respect. Racism is a feeling of superiority. I feel superior over to someone because of their race. Respect is a feeling of deep admiration for someone. So we can do a lot to reduce racism, and we should. 
But I, you can have a person who doesn't feel superior to someone else, but doesn't necessarily have deep respect for that other person. They just don't feel superior. So from my perspective, we need to push beyond our traditional approaches to change, which are problem-oriented. We need to look at strength as well. Yes, reduce racism, also increase respect. And not surprisingly, what the research shows us is that if we focus also on the second, it's not an either-or, it's an and-both. If we focus on the second, often that turns itself back around to be part of the solution for the problem. If we spend our time helping people build up a deep sense of admiration for their fellow man or fellow woman, it's very hard to feel superior to someone when you have a deep sense of admiration for them. So focusing on strengths helps us circle back for the problem. I do a lot of work in schools. That's where mo most of my work is focused. And a lot of schools these days have anti-bullying programs. And I'm all for that. I think it's fantastic that we're doing that. But I don't think it's enough. Anti-bullying programs about, are about reducing harm. We absolutely have to do that. But why not also have pro-kindness programs, right? Social justice programs, programs that build empathy and compassion and altruism, restorative justice type kind of programs. Because if we're just reducing bullying, we need to do that. It's taking away harm. But taking away harm is not the same as doing good. I cannot bully you, but that doesn't mean that I'm also being kind to you or empathetic to you. It means I'm just not causing any harm to you. Do you see the difference? Do you see that distinction? So the absence of a negative is not the same as a presence of a positive, and yet most of our change initiatives are designed to reduce or get rid of or ameliorate the negative. We don't think to extend ourselves and say, what more could we be doing? How can we play to our strengths? In my field in mental health, there's big push on reducing illness for 100 plus years, my field of psychology. We're, we're a healing profession. We are about reducing illness. In the last 20 years, the new field of positive psychology, which is the field that I work in, has really extended that and said, it's not just about reducing depression, anxiety, self-harm, addiction, relationship problems. It's also about building up wellness. It's about building up hope, optimism, courage. It's about building up positive relationships, respect and empathy. The absence of illness is not the same as the presence of wellness. So my field is very much about extending the practice of psychology to say it can't just be about healing someone who's ill. It also has to be about equipping them with the tools so that they can get well and they can stay well. <coughs> I know some people have my book uh, and a couple of people have come up uh, in the morning tea break and, and talk to me about my book and so thank you for doing that. I talk a little bit about my own journey in my book um, I was born in 1971, so love disco. Teenager in the 80s, love everything to do with the 80s. Pop music, synthesizers, leg warmers, spandex. Don't wear spandex anymore, but appreciate people who do. <laughs> um, <clears throat> in some ways, I, I grew up in a very small country town. I grew up on five acres, dirt roads, uh, horses, ducks, geese, little farm. I don't, uh, an idyllic childhood in some ways uh, but in other ways my childhood I suffered a lot in my childhood I have a mother who has a very severe mental illness and this was in the 70s so there was no conversation like there is these days 
Uh, she didn't get the help that she needed and um, she really suffered. She spent time in and out of psychiatric institutions, multiple suicide attempts and when things weren't going well for her and her mental health was compromised, um, unfortunately she would become very violent. Um, these days we have a term for it. It's called domestic violence. In the 70s there was no term for it and no one talked about it. So we didn't talk about it. It was just this great source of shame and stigma in my family. And I'm the oldest, so I took on the responsibility uh, at a very young age to be the protector of my younger brother and my younger sister and to be constantly on, on uh, hyper-vigilant, hyper-alert, just constantly looking for a little change in my mum's tone of voice or her demeanour or her facial expression. That meant she was about to flip. And my job was to step in between my mum and my younger brother and my younger sister and, and literally take the punch uh, or the kick, the yank of the hair, the dig of the fingernails into the elbow, whatever it happened to be in that moment. So I dealt with a lot at a, at a young age, um, domestic violence from my mother, a lot of emotional abuse, verbal abuse, psychological violence from both of my parents. And um, unfortunately also at the age of 11 was raped by someone that my father brought home to live with us for a short period of time. So by the time I was 15, I had slipped into mental illness and I developed an eating disorder, bulimia. Um, it was a lot to do with the struggle and the abuse. I understand now as an adult and a qualified psychologist that a big part of that was also keeping it secret, just the enormous amount of effort that went into not uh, talking about it. And my, my dad didn't know how to handle it. And so unfortunately, he, he put a lot of energy and effort into keeping everything behind closed doors, making sure that the family reputation wasn't damaged. So when I was 15, I developed an eating disorder. I developed bulimia and I, was, I had a lot of anxiety as well. My younger sister also developed the same eating disorder. When she was 15, she ran away from home, dropped out of school. It was a couple of weeks before my uh, year 12 exams and we didn't know where she was. We did find her and um, not surprisingly, she decided that she didn't want to come home. She um, had a very high IQ, dropped out of high school in year nine and went back into a relationship with my parents when she was, uh, you know, kind of 19, early 20s. Later in her life, went back to school and trained to be a social worker. And I'm so proud of her for doing that. She was a single mum and, you know, she had a lot against her. Um, so I grew up to be a psychologist and she grew up to be a social worker. And in some respects, we've both made meaning of the struggles that we've had. Um, when I was 22, I was studying to be a psychologist and I finally made the decision to get some help myself. And I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, when my sister was in her 30s, she finally made the decision to go and get help. And she was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder as well. Uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't know how many people in the room know about the difference, but uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder is stress disorder that occurs through relationship. Post-traumatic stress disorder can occur because of a one-off trauma, uh, you know, an accident, a terrorist event, um, a, a certain defined period at war. 
complex post-traumatic stress disorder is ongoing, what psychologists call repeated relational trauma. And it occurs where the people who you are in relationship with who are supposed to be protecting you are the people who are actually abusing you. So my sister and I had exactly the same diagnosis 10 years apart from different psychologists. In my 30s, this is when the field of positive psychology first came forward. And the big call for the field of positive psychology, as I've just explained, is don't just fix what's wrong, build what's right. And at an individual level, I'd never thought about what was right with me. I knew a lot about what was wrong with me and I'd suffered anxiety and I'd suffered depression, I'd suffered an eating disorder. I knew I, you know, I would, the messages that I got as a young child, I was weak, I was unworthy, I was faulty, I was unlovable. I was the reason, my mum would say that I was the reason why she became mentally ill because I was the firstborn, I was too much. So I knew a lot about what was wrong with me and I'd spent years in therapy overcoming, overcoming depression, overcoming an eating disorder, overcoming getting rid of illness but the absence of illness is not the same as the presence of wellness. So I found myself in my 30s as a person who was no longer ill and touch wood have not been ill since then. Anxiety, I can slip back into that, um, but I learned to manage it. But the, the, the eating disorder, the depression, that's long gone. But the absence of illness is not the same as the presence of wellness. I was a person who was no longer ill, but I wasn't happy, healthy, vibrant, thriving. I wasn't living to my full potential. Until, I, until the field of positive psychology came forward and I found myself a strength-based psychologist. At that time, they were very rare. There weren't many. It was a very new field. I'll never forget going in to see this psychologist. And um, if any of you had, uh, have, have had therapy, I've had enough for everyone in this room. You know, the first two sessions are just really patient history. So he's taking a lot of notes and he's not saying much. The end of the second session, he put his pen down and he looked at me. And I remember, I remember my heart dropping because I just thought, here we go. Like, I'm going to hear everything that's wrong. And um, he said to me, have you got any idea how strong you are to have survived what you have survived, to have not become bitter, to have stayed open-hearted, to have completed a PhD, to be helping people, to be in a long-term relationship have you got any idea how strong you are? And of course, I started bawling my eyes out because no one had ever said that to me. And I had a lot of love in my adult life. I'm very, very lucky. I met my husband when I was 20, even though he annoys me because he's security man and temperature man. We've been together. I'm 48. You know, I've had this long-term, 28-year-long, healthy, happy, adjusted relationship. I have beautiful children. I have lovely friends. So I had a lot of love in my 30s, but I had no one had ever told me that you were strong. And I went home to my husband and I said, oh, my God. You told me I was strong. And my husband's like, well, you did pay to see a strength-based psychologist. <laughs> so probably not a surprise. I'm like, yeah, fair point, fair point. But that was a really turning point for me, my own individual journey, that I worked with him and he really connected me to my strengths, my intellect, my curiosity, my um, compassion. And he really challenged me, like, what are you going to do now that you're finally owning your strengths. He helped me to see that. My strengths had been there the whole time. They had actually helped me to cope with, with a very dark childhood because I had intellect, so I did well at school. School was like my happy place and it was safe and it was routine, it was predictable. I knew I was safe with the adults, I got praised. So I was utilising a strength and my 
my social strengths, my kindness, my compassion. I had really lovely friends in high school. I was always staying the night at their place. And so I, I didn't realise it, but my strengths back then were what got me through. They were like my life raft. I just didn't realise I wasn't using them intentionally. So he said, well, now you're in your 30s, start to use them intentionally. Um, and, and that has been a big part of my own healing journey. Uh, my sister, unfortunately, didn't have, hasn't had as... Uh, well, she had a different journey and she suffered... Her, her uh, anxiety and depression continued. Um, and very uh, sadly, I lost my sister to suicide two years ago. In fact, it'll, this Monday, it'll be two years exactly. And it's a... It's just a profound loss. It's the, it's the sharpest pain sitting beside the dullest ache. And it's like someone reached into my chest without my permission and just tore off a chunk of my heart and just walked away with it. And I'm never, ever going to get that piece of my heart back. And it's hard for me to talk about, but I want to because I think it's groups like this where we, ha we need to start talking about this. We need to start talking more publicly about family violence. We need to start talking more publicly about suicide, about mental illness. Because we need to be doing something about it and it's, the, it's us, it's the people in this room who really have the opportunity to do that. And we need to because our young people are struggling. These are some of the latest statistics of youth mental illness in Australia. Approximately 25% of teenagers and young adults are experiencing mental illness. 50% of all illness in our teenagers is mental illness. And suicide is the number one leading cause of death for teenagers in our country. And that just makes me feel so sad. Because we are a democratic, wealthy country in peacetime. And we are letting a quarter of our population struggle and suffer. And we need to be doing something about it. And so this is where taking the strength-based approach comes in. I just want to finish with an example of a community, a community who got angry and then got organised around youth mental illness. So my own journey now is uh, I set up the Centre for Positive Psychology almost 10 years ago. It's a centre at the university that specialises in the science of positive psychology because the science of positive psychology was so helpful for me in my own journey and I wanted to bring that to young people. I can't change my past, but I can change the future of as many young Australians as I possibly can. And that's my mission. That's my purpose, is to do everything I can to help protect and support and build the mental health of young Australians having been a young Australian who knows what it's like to live without your mental health. So we set up the Centre for Positive Psychology. In the last five years, I've also set up a social enterprise deliberately designed to take good science and turn it into programs and practices and initiatives that make a difference at concrete, on the ground, to young people. And I've done that through setting up a program for early learning centres, setting up a program for schools and then setting up uh, programs for families. We have a, a lovely little program for early learning centres called the Strength Stars. And it teaches little kids, kids as young as three, that they have their own unique strengths. Some kids are kind. Some kids are wise. Some kids are brave. Some kids are like just get out of town funny. But they each have their own unique strengths. 
I have a program uh, called Visible Wellbeing. It's a social enterprise that goes to schools. And we're now in five countries across the world. We have more than 100 schools who are using this initiative to bring the science of positive psychology to young students. Um, families is a little bit tougher because you can't go through a sector or an industry or a, you know, an association. But what I've done for families is, of course, I wrote the book. Um, the book, I'm so proud of that book, actually. Honestly, I mean, I wrote it between a full-time job and two kids. I wrote it at three o'clock in the morning, uh, feeding my addiction to caffeine and chocolate. You know, um, the book got published two days after I lost my sister. So it was a really—I don't even have words for what it was like at that time. But um, the book has now been translated into ten different languages. And it's really gone off across the world and it's so meaningful to have parents from different countries write to me on social media and say, I just want you to know I'm using this book and it's radically changed the relationship with my teenage son. Um, and, and for me to think, you know, I grew up in this small little town, no privileges, a lot of struggle. And now my book's in 10 different languages. It's in Arabic and it's in Russian. It's in Hungarian. And it's in Hungarian, the strength switch translates to Fokusban. <laughs> I know, why do we laugh? But it's funny, isn't it? My kids think it's funny because it sounds like a swear word. <laughs> and it's now become this kind of like catch-all phrase in my, in my home. Like, you know, Nick will yell out, Mum, where's the peanut butter? And I'll be like, I don't know. I think it's in the focus barn. It's just become this like sort of term in our family, this funny term. Families, the book, and then also uh, an online program because not everyone likes to read books. That's not everyone's thing. I can tell you my husband has not read a single parenting book, in the not even mine. <laughs> he read the first chapter, just in case anyone asked him about it, but um, <laughs> online and then a, a facilitated course. So what do we do with these things? And this is where I want to finish up. This is working with a community, Upper Hunter, in New South Wales, a community who got angry and then got organised. Upper Hunter is 140 kilometres away from Newcastle. Um, it is a mining town, it is a farming town and it, it is an equestrian town. And because of the drought and because of the downturn in mining, it is a town that is struggling. Um, and very sadly, it is a town that has experienced a youth suicide cluster. So way too many young people taking their own life in that community. One mother whose uh, boy took his own life, her boy was called Will, and she set up a charity called Where There's a Will. And she and her team um, of basically, you know, farm wives have set up this charity and it, this is about a community taking action by the community for the community. And they've raised all of this money through all sorts of things. One example is Glencore. Can you see the, the truck with the Where There's a Will logo on it? Every time that truck makes a delivery, Glencore donates money to Where There's a Will. And it is amazing when you drive. I, I, I work in this community and I've been working with them for the last 18 months. So I hire my car from Newcastle Airport and I drive out there. It's a two-hour drive. When you're driving along that highway and the where there's a will, coal, there's coal trucks going past you all the time. But when the where there's a will coal truck goes by, everyone pulls over to the side of the road and they let the truck get by quickly because they know that every time that truck makes a delivery, money is donated by Glencore back to their community back to the program that they're doing to support the mental health of their students. They donate money through um, their local rugby, those, those rainbow socks. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to flip forward. 
what they have done is put that money towards a whole-scale strength-based initiative to build the mental health of young people in that area. They're absolutely working on depression management. They've increased the number of psychologists. They're working on the problem, but they also understand that they need to work on the strengths and building up the strengths. So visible wellbeing, my school approach, is in all 23 schools in that region. And we've trained uh, all of the teachers in that region to be able to bring that science to their students. The Strength Stars program is in all 15 of the early learning centres in that region. And for families, every single family has access, if they want to, to a free copy of the book. We, we have trained five facilitators in that region, just local mums who are interested in this, who will be running courses at the local RSL clubs for parents on how it is that they can take a strength-based approach at home. So this whole school initiative, starting from the earliest little kids right through to families, looking at how it is that we can take a strength-based approach. I do have a little video to show, but I think I've gone over time, so we'll have to leave it there. But I want to thank you so much for your time and your attention. Things happen at the community level, and I guess what I'm encouraging you to do, whether it be mental health or whether it be some other form of initiative, is just train your mind to flick the strength switch, go beyond the temptation of fixing the problem, and have a look at what are the strengths in the system and what, I, what, what can I leverage to do that. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities In Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.